You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Um, and so if you have your Bible with you this morning, we're going to ask that you turn there with us. Um, if you didn't bring a Bible, but you would like to read from a hard copy of the text, you can find one under a seat around you. Um, and of course, it'll also be displayed on the screen behind us. So we're going to be in Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7 this morning. So when you get there, if you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Exodus chapter 17, verse 1 says, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on, moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. It's a great day to be washed in the blood, amen? Amen. All right, as Lauren said, we're in the book of Exodus, and we have kind of turned into part two. There's a lot of recap I would like to do, but I'm not going to do this morning. So if you're kind of jumping in the middle of this, I highly encourage you to check out the previous sermons. You can do that on our podcast. So you can kind of get a feel of kind of what we've covered so far, where we're at now, and then also where we're going, but for today, I want to really just kind of focus in on Exodus 17 here. So what I would like to do is just start off by praying together for the Lord to help us hear from the word, and then we'll get into it. So if you guys would join me, let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we pray in this very moment that we would have eyes to see, ears to hear, what it is you're saying to us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help us to see the word rightly and to rejoice in the truths that we will speak about today. Let us always heed the warning of the New Testament, not to harden our hearts as the people did in Exodus, but rather to believe in you, Lord, to trust you, to look to you. And so God, give us this grace and we pray for it right now in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so mainly what I want to do today out of Exodus chapter 17 is I want to look at three things that we can observe for our encouragement and warning. So that's kind of the way I want to look at the text today. There's three things here that are both encouraging and a warning for us to look to, for us to observe, and for us to respond to. And so to do that, I want to quickly go to verse 1 and just kind of give a a brief recap of some events in Exodus, because I think they matter to what we're going to talk about today. So look at verse 1 again. 
And it says, All the congregation of the people of, of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So what has happened so far in Exodus that has been a repeating theme and will continue to be a repeating theme throughout Exodus is God is leading his people into a moment of crises. And it's in that moment that they usually complain, they grumble, they whine, they quarrel, they're upset because it seems like God didn't really do it right, at least how they planned that events would go for their life at that time. And then God comes in and through miracles, he miraculously rescues them out of that crisis, right? And then this story continues, right? And God shows his goodness, he shows his greatness, his might, his power, his benevolence, and then what happens is a few moments later, they end up in another crisis and the same thing repeats and repeats and repeats throughout the book of Exodus. And this is important for us to remember. Here's a, a few things that happen in the book of Exodus. First of all, it starts off that the children of Israel are slaves in Egypt, right? After Joseph and everything happened, they end up as slaves. They end up in this very difficult circumstance where they are uh, in torment, basically, under Pharaoh, under the Egyptians, under God's people. And then God in his great mercy, rescues them, right? He sends the 10 plagues. He has Moses part the Red Sea. He saves them from the army. He kills the armies of Pharaoh and God rescues them out of that crisis. And then they are led by a cloud by day and a pillar by night. So throughout the wilderness, they are led by God, provided by God. Then we get to where uh, the waters at Marah are made sweet by God. So they have something to drink. And then after that, God provides them manna from heaven, which we discussed last week. So they didn't have anything to eat. God provides them manna for breakfast. He provides quail for dinner. And God is just continually rescuing his people. And then we get to this circumstance here, which we have read and seen. Now they're thirsty again. And God is going to provide water again in a unique way. And so God has been, been doing this. There's been lots of moments of crises for them to be rescued by God, for them to see God's goodness, for them to put their trust and faith in God, to see that God is faithful. He is doing what he said he would do, right? Because each moment of crisis, what they're kind of stuck with is God had promised all these glorious things about us getting out of slavery and getting this beautiful land flowing with milk and honey. And now we're about to die because we have nothing to eat, right? And it's this moment they choose either to believe in the Lord, to trust his promises, to know that he's good, to know that he's in control, or to do the opposite. And I, I would argue that your life is going to be that same story. It's going to look a lot different than the book of Exodus, but your life is going to be, whether small or great, moments of crises for you to see that God is good, right? That he is who he said he is, that he's trustworthy. Now, that doesn't mean that we're always going to be rescued in such a miraculous way and that all of our problems are going to be solved. No, it doesn't look that way for us. But there's always, I think, in our lives, whether we're in the blessing or we feel like we're in the curse, right, that it's a moment for us to trust the Lord, to, to know that he has said who he is. He said what he would do for us and we now have a moment to trust him. I think it's an important lesson for us as we dive into our observations today. So now they're thirsty again. They're in another moment of crisis. There's three things I want to observe. The first thing is Israel's hardness of heart. It's their hardness of heart. This is a great warning for us, an observation, and hopefully an encouragement as we continue. Let's look at verses, let's just look at verse two. It says, therefore the people quarrel with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? And 
this is where it starts, okay? You're going to kind of see these things where they start to talk with Moses. And, and I would argue that really it's not just Moses they're after. It's ultimately God they're after. That's why Moses says, well, why do you quarrel with me and why do you test the Lord? And so all these things are applying to Moses, the kind of figurehead leading God's people. They're applying to God himself. Um, so let's look. There's kind of a few things here. So one we saw in verse 2 is that they quarrel with God, okay? So how did they quarrel? With God, And this is going to show their hardness of heart. And we're leading this to somewhere. But here's how they quarrel. Now, I feel like I'm saying that word weird. I have a West Virginia accent, so I apologize if that sounds different. But let's continue. Um, they demand that God give them water or that Moses, right? That's what we see in verse 2. They're demanding, right? Like, give us water. We're thirsty. We need to drink. So there is this unique presumption and pride in the people of God that they think they are owed something, right? And so when they get to the wilderness, they're just like, hey, you brought us out here, right? Give us water to drink. We're thirsty. There's this demanding for the water. And this is very important as we consider human nature, right? Uh, another way you could word this about the people of God and their quarreling with Moses and with God is that they are presuming to be the center of the story, Right? That's what they're doing here. They're presuming to be what's most important. They're presuming to be the center of what's going on here in the book of Exodus. And we know that they're not, right? We know that none of us are the center of the universe. Now, we live a lot like that, right? Because we feel by nature of human sin and pride and our wickedness, we feel somehow that we're owed things, right? That we're at the center of the story, that we're in the right, that God needs to serve us. And this is for sure, a symptom of a hard heart. So they're presuming that God must give them water and that they are the center of the story. And this is pride, this is arrogance, okay? And and we know this is happening so much so that Moses is gonna go on to say, look, God, if we don't do something here, they're going to stone me, okay? So they are in such a presumption that they deserve the water that they're willing to stone Moses to death in order to... Make things right, if you will. But this is a problem, right? And it may not look the same for us. But I say this is a warning because we also can have a hardness of heart. And this is a theme throughout the New Testament. And we'll we'll read something in it in just a minute. But that we have to be careful, lest we have the same hard heart that the people in Exodus had. This is a warning throughout the New Testament for us. And even the Old Testament, not to be this way, okay? And so it's easy for us to feel like we are the center of the story, to feel like we are owed something by God. But we know that's not true, right? And that's not a freeing thing to feel. It's actually a very trapping thing to feel. We know that we exist for mainly one reason. And what is that? It's, it's to glorify God, right? We exist to make much of him. We exist to exalt him. We exist to worship him, right? That's why we exist. And so There's lots of things we could say here, but this is a problematic assumption, right? That we are the center. God is the center. And they are quarreling with Moses because they are fed up with it. They did not expect this, okay? They're going in the wilderness, expecting this land flowing with milk and honey. And the promise is coming, but rather than believing in God, trusting in God, understanding that God has a plan, that he's in control, that he will make a way out of their circumstance, rather they choose to quarrel and to fight and to assume that they should get the water, And then we get on to verse 3, which says this. But the people 
thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why do you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? This is their next response. And so after quarreling, they begin grumbling, okay? So they grumbled against God and against Moses. And how did they do that? Well, first of all, they accuse Moses and God. Uh, they accuse him of basically bringing them out into the wilderness just to kill them, right? To have no good purpose, no good end. Uh, there's no uh, benevolence there, right, about God. They're just assuming, God, you're just the worst, right? And this can play out many ways in our lives. And I don't want to go into too many examples, but... You know, we, we can often feel slighted, right? Like, God, why, why, why? Why are other people experiencing such good things in their life that I can see on social media and then oh, for some reason you brought me here, right? Like, why? Why did this circumstance? And it can be kind of funny to maybe look at those assumptions and laugh a little bit, but also there's serious circumstances you're brought to, right? Like, why am I maybe facing death? Why have I experienced the loss of a loved one? God, why have you brought me here to this sickness or this problem? Or why can I not have finances to just pay for my bills or whatever it may be, right? And they're assuming that God, or they're assuming the worst in him, first of all. They're assuming that his great promises for the future were for nothing, right? They're assuming that God is not who he said he would be for them or who he is for them, rather. They're making assumptions. They're accusing God. God, have you, have you brought, just to kill me, right? Have you done all these mighty works just to bring us out here to die? And obviously the answer is no, but in their eyes, God is cruel. He's not benevolent. God is not good. He is just wrathful is what they see. It was an accusation of God's disregard for their lives and their circumstances. And ultimately, it was an accusation of God's lack of wisdom and providence in their lives. They are assuming that he is somehow not fit to lead and to guide them through the wilderness, that he is not the God who he says he is. This is a big assumption. And this assumption comes from the hardness of heart. It was the same hardness of heart in Pharaoh in Egypt that they were rescued from and still dwells in them. This is why they longed for Egypt so much. And so we see that not only are they beginning to quarrel, but now they are grumbling about God's character and accusing him of wrong. And then let's skip down to verse 7. Because it's kind of like a summary verse of that moment, but it gives some more insight into what was going on there. It says this, And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So the third thing that we see in regards to their hardness of heart is they questioned the very uh, presence and care of God with his people, right? Is the Lord among us or not? Right? They're, they're angry at God, right? This hardness of heart produces this anger towards the Lord, and they're even assuming, is he even here? Is he even real, right? Which is, we would say, amazing, right? Because they saw all these mighty works, yet their heart was still hard, and they even question, is God even there? I think it's funny that the people that are most passionate about God not existing are usually people that hate him the most, too. It's a very interesting uh, dynamic there, but... This is an unbridled hatred towards God. This is a hardness of heart. This is the hardness of heart at its finest. So this question, is the Lord among us or not, was a question based on feelings and not reality. It was a question based on what it felt like in the circumstance with their hardness of heart, not based on the truth, which is God has been with his people 
okay? Uh, it's a warning for us that we cannot base our, uh, really I would say our, our, our joy, we cannot base our knowing of the truth of the gospel and who God is for us on how we feel. That's a very dangerous thing to do. Not that we won't have feelings, but we definitely can't rely on them in that way. They failed to look back at the wonders that God had wrought amongst them, right? God had done some amazing things in rescuing them. He's going to continue to do more, and he's about to do one here in this uh, section of Scripture. But nonetheless, they, they failed to look back on what he had done to remember his goodness and to know who he was. And rather, is, is he even among us? Is he even here and maybe some of us have asked that question throughout life too, right? Is God even real? Is he even with me? Is he even really care? Whatever it may be, fill in the blank. But um, the point is right here is that they're pointing their fingers at God in judgment. When in reality, God is and should be pointing his fingers in judgment at them, right? So the whole thing is backwards because of this hardness of heart. Now, Psalm 95 uh, gives because it didn't really say hardness of heart here, but we get this from Psalm 95, verse 7 through 9. I'm going to read it for us real quick. It says this, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. And so there's the warning, once again, from the Old Testament not to harden our hearts like they did in this very moment, right? So this is a good, uh, I guess, um, conclusion of this is that they, they hardened their hearts against God even though they saw his works. And this serves as a warning for us not to harden our hearts. And we'll talk a little bit more about this, but ultimately they failed to see God as the benevolent, providential, provider, God Almighty, rescuer, glory, center of the story. They failed to see him this way and rather they turn inward to themselves with hardness of hearts. And so I want to read one more text about this warning. And here's what Hebrews 3 says, verse 7 through 9. Let's listen to these words as they comment on the Old Testament here. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I may have forgot to give you this text. I'm sorry back there. It's my fault. Uh, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And then he says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And I'll, I'll stop right there for that. So conclusion of point one is that we must observe, we must learn from the hardness of heart of the children of Israel. It's what we see, okay? We see this, it's a warning, it's an encouragement to us not to do the same and I hope we see how that can definitely apply to us, right? The, the uh, story here is not mainly just to observe a people of something that happened long ago. It, it is mainly to show us what's inside of us and what we need rescued from, amen? So my next observation here in the text is God's response to their hardness of heart. And this is important, important for us to look at. God responds in such a way. I wanna read verses four through six and then we'll, discuss what's happening here. Here's what it says. 
So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you and there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So there's a lot going on here, but I, I want to look at God's response. He does some very interesting things here that I think are really good for us to observe. The first thing, and this is a little bit out of order, but just roll with me here. Uh, God tells Moses to take the staff that was used to strike the Nile and turn the water into blood, okay? So his first response when Moses cries out, okay, he cries out to God. This could have been Moses in absolute anger. There's oftentimes where Moses is super angry at the people, probably would have killed them if God hadn't intervened. Or he could have been crying out in desperation, wanting God to help him because they were about to kill him. Either way, Moses cries out to God and God chooses to respond and the first thing he tells him is to get the elders and to get the staff. Now, this staff is an important symbol for us, okay? Now, you might be thinking, or you might have assumed in this text, I did as I read it again, I was like, oh, I would have assumed he would have said, hey, take the staff that you parted the Red Sea with, right? This mighty work. But he actually says, take the staff on which you struck the Nile, right? Which is the, the first plague where God told Moses to strike the Nile with it, and he turned all the water into blood, right? And so this staff, in particular with this moment, it represents two things. And first is the judgment of God, right? It represents the judgment of God. Well, what was God doing when he did this to the people of Egypt when he told Moses to strike the rod and turn to water? Well, first of all, he took away their supply of drinking water which is very interesting because the people are crying about having drinking water, right? And God did that very thing to the Egyptians where he took away their drinking water by striking the Nile. So this, you can see how this is a warning here, right, of God's judgment. It was also just their water supply generally. So everything that it takes to live, which requires water, was taken away from the Egyptians in that moment as the water was turned into blood, blood also representing the judgment. And so in a unique way, God is saying, take the staff where this happened. And he is describing this as a staff of judgment, okay? But we got to remember that in that moment of judgment, it was also a moment of blessing for the people of Israel, right? So that staff served, yes, to judge the Egyptians for their hardness of heart, which is a clear warning to the people as God's responding to his people. But it is also a clear understanding that God is talking about the blessing. How was this a staff of blessing or a rod of blessing? Well, God also used this rod because this was the initiation of him rescuing his people, right? This is the first of the plagues that many would follow that would eventually lead to God's people being rescued out of slavery, right? The parting of the Red Sea, being brought into the wilderness and all of these mighty works that he had wrought. So he makes him take the staff as a symbol. That's the point I want to make here, okay? This is an important symbol. This isn't arbitrary. It wasn't because the power was just in the staff like some wizard, okay, with his wand. It was because God was showing them something. It was a symbol. And if you're like me, you would think, well, the expectation here is that God is going to judge these fools, right? That's what he's saying with this, <laughs> with bringing the staff. Is he's saying, okay, you're not getting it. I'm about to unleash fury on you. But rather, what does God do with the staff is that he provides the water for his people, right? We're going to see this in his response over and over again. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But 
God is bringing blessing to them, even in the midst of their hardness of heart, which is an important lesson for us. God also asked Moses to bring the elders with him. So it wasn't like everyone got to see this miracle. They all got to experience the tasting of it, right? The water that came from it to water, uh, to get water for their cattle, water for themselves, water for their children. But God asked specifically the elders to come. And I think there might be a few things going on here. Uh, one, I think it was, it was uh, we don't really get the details, but it seems like the elders even themselves were probably grumbling as well, right? And these are the people that are supposed to oversee the people. And so God brings uh, the elders along to, to show them, right? They're, they're supposed to represent the people. They're supposed to help lead the people. And they're not doing that as the elders, rather they're grumbling. And so God brings them along to show them specifically his might, his power. It's a warning, right, of their hardness of heart as they lead the people. And then also, not everyone got to see the miracle. I think that's also important because I think that was maybe a symbol once again of God uh, judging, right, showing the fierceness against the hardness of heart that he was to bring. And also, God promises to be with Moses. This is another thing we see in verse six. God says, go and I will be with you on the rock at Horeb. This is a big promise. So we got the symbol of the rod, right, of the staff that God was giving, but God also promises Moses that he is going to be there. I love this, right, because there is no way anyone's going to provide water in the wilderness, right? They're in a desert. Apart from stumbling across some pool of water, which happened before, and God made it sweet instead of bitter, right, or these other things, like, there's no way the people are going to get water apart from God's power, right? There's no way. But God, he's so gracious to them in this moment. He promises to be with Moses. And I think this is a clear representation that he's the source of the water, right? Once again, it's not the magical staff. It's not Moses himself. But God promises, I will be with you. And there will be water because of me, right, is what God is saying. Because I will provide the water for my people. And then my last observation here of God's response is that God does provide the water. I love this. God provides the water. So his response here in this moment, though all signs point to what? God should condemn them, right? This should be a moment of judgment. This should be a moment of him giving them what they deserve for their hardness of heart, right? This is what should happen. This would be the just thing in this moment to happen. Yet God, in his grace, is very merciful to his people. They get the very thing they don't deserve, which is their thirst to be quenched, right? The very thing they shouldn't get, they get from the hand of God. God's response to their hardness of heart is very, very Merciful, And it has been throughout the book of Exodus so far and will continue to be throughout the book of Exodus until the eventual end, which is they, most of them are condemned to die in the wilderness because of their hardness of heart. doesn't end well for most of these people, but God nonetheless is being very merciful to them. He provides the water. He satisfies these ungrateful and undeserving people in the desert. He gives them what they need to live Now, he's always been providing for them, but in this moment, in a particular miraculous way, he provides for them. And it is a good and gracious thing of our God to do that. Amen. So we not only hear the warning of the hardness of heart, but we also see 
the provision of God, the merciful response from God, though undeserving, to his people to give them water. My third observation is the picture of the gospel given to us, okay? There's a beautiful picture of the gospel in this text that I I want to talk about. And as a wise friend once told me, the New Testament is often a commentary on what's going on in the Old Testament, right? And this is a kind of important way to understand. The New Testament is really describing what's been happening here. And I want to see this picture of the gospel. There's a few points I have under this. One clear picture of the gospel is that condemnation was escaped in this moment. The people of God escaped condemnation, right? It was escaped. The people of Israel deserve nothing but the judgment of God for their hardness of heart, their accusations against him, right? That's all they deserve. They deserve the shame, the punishment, the judgment, all things that come with that, yet it's not given to them. They should be condemned and killed in the wilderness. But in this moment, God is gracious to them. He provides for them water, their children, their cattle, despite their testing him, despite their quarreling, despite their grumbling, despite their accusing, God provides the water for them. So there is this clear picture of the gospel here, right? This is us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? That we are deserving of the same condemnation. We bear the same hardness of heart. We bear the same testing of the Lord, the same quarreling, the same grumbling. Yeah, you and I are provided water that never runs out. Amen? We are. And one of the greatest things, my next observation here about the gospel is that Christ is the rock who would be struck, right? And we get this directly from the Bible. 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 1, says this. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. This is Paul, he's clear commentary. This is Jesus Christ, right? He is the rock that was to be struck. This is a glorious picture of what's going on here. When God says, look, I'm going to be with you at the rock, on the rock at Horeb, I will be there and I want you to strike the rock and I will provide water for the people, right? Christ is the rock who was struck, right? With the rod of judgment. It is Jesus Christ who was struck for us, struck for his people. This is a beautiful thing. There's a lot of analogies here. I just want to, I want to go through a few. One is that Jesus is the source of all living water. John 7 verse 37 says this, and this is Jesus at the feast of uh, tabernacles uh, or booths. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water water. And it goes on to talk about, he said this about this, the spirit that would come. But Jesus says that whoever's thirsty can come to him and drink. Why? Because he's the rock that was struck that poured out living water. And he says, and out of your heart, if you drink from him, will flow rivers of living water. It's the same lesson he gives in John 4, right? To the woman at the well who had all the husbands and crazy lifestyle. And he says, look, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for water. And I would give you living water. And if you had that water, you'd never thirst again, right? It's Jesus 
Christ. He's the source. He's everything. He is the Christ who hung on the cross. And if you remember, after he died, he was poked, right? with the spear to make sure he was dead instead of his bones be broken to fulfill the prophecy and out of his side poured blood and water. That was to show Christ is the water. He's a sacrifice. He's everything, right? It's just a glorious picture of the gospel. If you get anything from this chapter, may you look to Jesus Christ, the rock that was struck. Now I have a few things I want to close with because we talked a lot about the hardness of heart, heeding the warning, right, of what's going on here. And I thought it would be good to just mention a few things. If I can read my own handwriting, we'll see what happens here. Um, But if we do not want to be like the people in the wilderness, right, who were hard in their hearts, who could not and would not see the glory of God in what was going on, there's a few things I want us to consider. First of all is, Let us thirst for the living water. Let us thirst for it. Not like the people of Israel who they thirsted out of their own selfishness, self-centeredness. They thirsted out of their own condemnation and hardness of heart. But rather, let us thirst for the Lord who is the water, who provides the water, who is struck so that we might obtain the living water, which is himself. Let us do this. Let us beg God for this. That's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, like, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So the problem wasn't that they hungered. It was why they hungered, right? They hungered out of a hardness of heart. So be thirsty, right? Be thirsty is the application. Be thirsty for the Lord. Do not settle for being satisfied for things that aren't Him, right? We don't want to be satisfied for things that aren't Him. We want to be thirsty for God, in the wilderness, be thirsty for the living water. Not the water that fades after you drink it, but the water that never runs out as Jesus promised would flow out of us if we drank from him. Second is let us trust the promises of God that are held out to us in his word. This is the one thing they failed to do in their hardness of heart was to trust in the promises of God. Every moment in your life that you run into a crisis, may you look to the promises of God and trust him. Trust him, amen? He is who he said he is. And he will always be who he said he is. It doesn't mean it's gonna be comfortable in the wilderness, in this life, but it does mean that he really will fulfill his promises. And we have to cling to that truth that we find in here. The point of him supplying the water is to show you can trust me. I am your provider. I am the Lord who rescued you out of bondage. I am the God who will bring you to the promised land, right? I will satisfy you with the living water. I am the water. And so we need to trust all the promises held out to us in the word of God, despite our circumstances, despite what it feels like, because we've been shown over and over and over again, not only in our own lives, but in the word of God, that he will do what he says. He is who he says he is. And then lastly, and my closing application is look to the rock. Look to the rock. In the wilderness, there was nowhere else that water was coming from. Right? The water wasn't going to be found by going over that ridge and looking that way. It wasn't going to be found journeying back that way. It was going to be found only in the rock, which is Christ. 
So look to the rock. Look to the rock. Be saved. Be satisfied. This is a warning for us. Now, I, I, gonna ha- you can be seated, stay seated, sorry, rather. But I just want to pray for us. I want to pray for us because um, there's no way for us to get the water. And that's kind of the thing, right, is that the water didn't come from the people. It wasn't like they knew where to find the water. It was simply that God, in this miraculous way, through a random rock, told Moses to strike it, and, and he provided. And, and we need God to provide for us, right? In this very moment, life in him, joy in him, peace in him. And so I just want to pray for that across the board. So if you join me, let's bow our heads together and let's pray to the Lord. Father, we thank you for this picture of the gospel in your word. We thank you, Lord, that you love us enough to give this to us. And our, our simple prayer this morning is that you would revive us, Lord, that you would give us living water from the rock of ages. God, that you would help us to drink deeply from you, to be satisfied in the wilderness, and God, not to be hard in our hearts. May that warning sit with us today, that today, as long as it's called today, don't harden your heart. God, we don't want to be hard. We don't want to be stuck in this mindset that we're the center of things, God. We want to be satisfied with you and you alone. Jesus, thank you that you are the rock that was stricken for us. And out of you, God, pours living water, healing from you. God, I thank you that the gospel's true. And I pray for every person under the sound of my voice right now, whether believer or not, that they would hear the promises you have given us, Lord, and they would believe them with all of their hearts, that no circumstance, no trouble, no darkness would keep them from believing, Lord, but that they would be satisfied in you. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.